read a scripture, a couple scriptures before the meeting, and um, it may seem a little bit bleak, but it's the word of the Lord, so bear with me here for a second. In Matthew 10, that chapter is just full, it's one of the most potent chapters, but in Matthew 10... Jesus has given some promises and he's made some warnings. He's told them that they're going to suffer, that the road before them is going to be hard. He uses language like this in verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then... As if it's not enough that people are going to be against us and we're going to be thrown to the courts and lied about and persecuted. He starts in verse 21 and says, your family's not going to like it either. Brother will betray brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher. And he goes on, he says, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, what are they going to call the members of his household? Down a little further, he says that if the sparrows don't fall without the Lord's knowledge, God's not going to let you go, any th- go through anything that He's not aware of and going to help you through. The very hairs of your head are numbered, verse 30. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. It's an interesting word there, confess and deny. The word he's using for deny is the same word that he uses when he tells us that we should deny ourselves. And the idea of confessing and denying him is not simply Cassie Bernal, she said yes. It's much more nuanced than that. It's whether we're going to make decisions by one compass or another. The brother said, if you make decisions based on desire, desire is your God. If you make decisions based on fear, fear is your God. Hatred, hatred is your God. And if you make decisions based on faith, then the Lord Jesus is your God. 
the same dynamic that he invites us to have toward our carnal nature is what we can't have toward his will and spirit in our lives. The word deny here means to resist. Doesn't mean to question the reality of something. It means to resist, to forbid, to suppress, to deny allowance. Makes me think very much of the passage. Brother Dan mentioned it, I think, last night. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. The injunction is meaningless if it is not in our power to quench the Spirit. So when he says, whoever confesses me before men or denies me before men, just keep in mind that there's something in us that is ashamed of His Lordship. We don't want to be made a fool of. We want to be spoken well of. We want to be respected. We want to get along in the world. And the, the, the tragic truth is that the Lordship of Jesus in your life is utterly incompatible with those objectives. He goes on, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Immediately he says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So, I said it was a little bit bleak, and I wasn't lying. Everybody complains about the church. Complains about its lack of power. Its lack of unity. Complains about the fact that the worship is lifeless. The witness isn't what it should be. But when they come face to face with a true alternative, they don't like the smell of sacrifice in the air. It's easier to sit on the sidelines and judge than to get down in the arena and say, I want to be part of the difference. I want to be part of the change. The first scripture the Lord dropped in my mind when I tried to lean back and take a nap this afternoon was from the second chapter of Luke. When Jesus was just eight days old, his father and mother, his earthly father and mother, took him to the temple to be blessed. 
to be circumcised, to offer the turtle dove sacrifice. Amen? And when they got there, there were two people that played a part in this blessing. One was a lady by the name of Anna, and the other a, an old man named Simeon. And Simeon had been waiting and asking God not to let him die until he saw the answer for Israel's duress. This guy was troubled. <laughs> he was not happy with the state of Israel, with the state of the people in his day. He was consecrated like Samuel to the temple. He must have been there all the time. And he was praying, Lord, don't let me die until I see the answer for this mess. Whenever Mary and Jesus, Mary and Joseph brought eight-day-old baby Jesus into the temple, Luke tells us that Simeon took Jesus in his arms and he prayed. He said, Now your servant can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. The glory of Israel and a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This spoke to me not dissimilar to what Helen said because God bless those who can hold a messianic potential when it's just eight days old crying in swaddling clothes and feel the promise that Israel has a change coming. We're so faithless. But this guy was so desperate. Eight days old. And he said, I can die happy because I have seen in its infant stages the glory of Israel and the light of revelations to the Gentiles. Simeon then turned and blessed. In verse 34, he blessed Mary. Blessed Mary and Joseph and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he's still speaking to Mary and he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul as well. Simeon's heart was revealed that day, though he encountered the Messiah in perhaps his weakest recorded form. Circumcised, helpless, wrapped up eight-day-old baby. But his heart was revealed. His seeking was validated when he held the promise and he said, God, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Let your servant depart in peace. But he knew that when this man became about 30 years of age, he was going to start clashing with the expectations and frameworks, pride and prejudices, traditions, 
of the people he had come to save. And he said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising. The same event. The same encounter with God is going to make some people fall in disbelief. Fall in arrogant rejection. Fall in skeptical denial. And others rise in hope for the first time. Others rise out of their leprosy bed. Others rise even out of their tombs. So easy to be a seeker until you come face to face with a new encounter. (sighs) Then the thoughts of many hearts are revealed. And he, he anticipated that Mary, Mary was going to hurt. Mary was going to hurt. Mary, who was probably a young teenager, when an angel spoke to her and said, Blessed are you, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And gave her the promise of the Messiah that was to be born. Mary, who had heard the words of the wise men. Mary, who had treasured the report of the shepherds. Mary, who stored all the good things about Jesus in her heart. Simeon must have seen something in her face that revealed to that prophet there's a disappointment on its way. This falling and rising is not going to leave you out of the equation. You're going to come face to face with something and a sword is going to pierce your heart. How many of us remember that in the fourth chapter of Mark, I think it is, Jesus was preaching and performing incredible miracles. And he's in a house on one occasion and it's so packed out that nobody can fit into the room. Here he is proclaiming the kingdom of God. Here he is giving us the words that we live by today, 2,000 years later. And it says that his mother and his siblings had come to arrest him. Because they said to themselves, he has lost his mind. If nobody close to you is questioning whether you've lost your mind, you're not in the will of God. I'm sorry. It's the truth. Because if you're living by the carnal mind, you're going to fit right in. To be carnally minded is death, and that's where everybody's comfortable. (laughs) But when you start to become possessed by a purpose transcendent to yourself, man, it freaks people out. John the Baptist came and didn't wear a camel skin suit and tie, but just wore camel's skin (laughs) and um, eating wild locusts and honey. And they said, he's he's a demon. He's got a demon. You know, man screaming out of the wilderness dressed like that. There's not a one of us that wouldn't look sideways a time or two and say, what's going on, Lord? You know, he says, I I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. You know what? God hides 
glory in places where the proud never discover it. God hides glory in places where the proud never discover it. The king of kings and lord of lords slipped into a barn, didn't he? Herod was looking all over the place, but he's not going to find him because he doesn't think about barns, mangers. And by and large, the greatest movement the world had ever known and would ever know, it was launched by a revolutionary who preached, and Rome didn't even blink twice. There are like four historical comments from the Roman Empire in total about Jesus within the lifespan that he spent on earth. Four comments. These little snide remarks. Even the Jews, their Talmud makes a little mention of him. You know what they said? I read it. I read it recently in the Talmud. They say about Yeshua, there was this guy named Yeshua who was a sorcerer and performed many miracles, but he was justly put to death for his sorcery. That's what the religious put down in their record when they were writing the history of Jesus. A blip, a blip. A blip on the screen at most. You see, they had a view of God that had to stay in places where they were in control. As long as God remained a concept, legal and intellectual, then they could be in control and they could manipulate that intellectual argument, that legal formula, six ways to Sunday. (laughs) But when God took on flesh and stepped into their world in the supernatural, they hated it. They were such cessationists that they called him a sorcerer. They never denied the miracles. Isn't that powerful? They never denied the miracles. Even in the Gospels you see that they did not deny the miracles. And he wanted them to talk about the miracles. John 8, you know the passage. They're wanting to kill him. And he says, for which miracle do you want to kill me? I mean, he wants them to face the fact that power has come into their world. But because they are really the gods of their religion... When religion is something that is utterly controllable by human beings, whether in mind or attitude, it becomes something other than God. And so when he stepped into their world in the supernatural, they didn't deny the fruit. They didn't deny the miracles. They simply said it's the devil. Oh, Christians do exactly the same thing today. Anytime God begins to move in a way that is not controllable by the flesh, you watch the religious will line up and call it the work of the devil. Of course, Jesus said that that was the only sin in all the world that could not be forgiven was a willingness to call the work of God the work of the enemy. He showed them the stupidity of their comment about casting out demons by Beelzebub. But he he was just a blip on their screen. They were not those who rose. They were those who fell. 
Amen. He was a sign to be spoken against, and the thoughts of many hearts were revealed. And Simeon uses this comment that maybe Paul or the writer of Hebrews is even picking up when he says, the Lord of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knew that Mary was going to struggle with this. So what I want to ask you today, before I get much further, and I don't have much further, is if you encountered God, if Jesus stepped into your world, how can you be so sure that he wouldn't offend you terribly? How can you be so sure that you would be one who rose in faith instead of fell in bitter unbelief? It's healthy to ask ourselves, isn't it? What do we want from God? Do you want a life apart from God? Do you want fulfillment apart from God? Do you expect to eat the fruit of satisfaction on every tree except the tree of life in the midst? And do you just want from God a fire insurance program that makes sure you don't go to hell? If that's what you want from God, then you're going to, need, you're going to want a Christianity that is reduced down to the tiniest bare minimum necessity. And you'll go through those motions in order to get the God duty done with and get the problem off your back. But if you have reached the end of yourself and you have even peered into the end of man and all of his futility and man's mind, the, the mind of man, which Paul said was futility in Ephesians 4. And if you, have, if you have come to the conviction that every promise out there is a lie, then perhaps a hunger and a thirst and a dissatisfaction will start to churn in your heart that says, God, I have got to find something real. I have got to find something enduring, something eternal. I have got to find something of power. I have got to find something of fruit. So many Christians are completely anesthetized. They are etherized by this insipid form of Christianity. It has no or so little bearing on their life. They sit amidst acres of putrefying fruit. But God is just an eternity problem solver. He's just the insurance plan that secures a sky palace if I acknowledge certain facts. That's not who the Lord is looking for. You know, it's amazing to me how uh, 
people encounter the Lord or people encounter a new way and they immediately say, oh, let's glue that on to the broken system that I am a part of. Look, I believe God wants to bring revival to his church worldwide. But I want us to question whether that revival is going to come from the foundation up or whether it's going to come from the periphery as glue-on fixes. Fruit is a hard thing to argue with. It's such an inconvenient thing, isn't it? You can have all kinds of notions. You can have all kinds of ideas, theologies, and oh, they're so airtight. Shoo! They just ring with logic. The world would be so proud. And then it's stale. It's lifeless. The song says, I knelt at altars of gold and silver, but found their storerooms all filled with dust. I want to change it. I want to say, I knelt at altars of religion and theology, but found their storerooms all filled with dust. So I'll worship only at the feet of Jesus, His cup alone, my holy grail. So there's this glue-on mentality, though, you know? And it's like, um, yeah, I remember this, this pastor of a church uh, visited us and befriended us on some level. And he came out and he sat in congregational settings like this and he was a good, he was a good man. And uh, he didn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he believed in cessationism, that that was all a thing of the past. And so he went back to his church and he said, we got to sing like those people. We got to sing from our bellies. He talked to the worship leader and he said, you got to teach them to sing from their bellies. So every, every time they'd get together to sing, they'd talk about singing from their bellies. And, and yet when, when he was handed a complete question and answer on the Holy Spirit, he took it and threw it in the garbage, literally, and said, I don't have any need for that. Tossed it into a wastebasket. I don't have any need for that. I got news for you. It's not your bellies. Unless, we, of course, we mean what Jesus said in the King James, out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. But see, that's a glue-on mentality. Do you, do you see what I mean? Oh, let's glue that on. Others will come and they'll say, oh, I never thought about doing anything on the land, but who doesn't love some good nature? Let's go get some property. Cow. Maybe some horses. Let's glue on some agriculture to the church and see if that changes. I got news for you. If you've got a disunified church, you know what will blow it to bits? Move them into community. It's crazy. It's a glue-on mentality. It's, it, it, it's never failed to fail. Somebody comes in and says, um, well, let's, let's do homeschooling like that. I like the way your, 
your relationships works. Could you give us building Christian character and we'll, we'll try to do that. We'll teach our kids to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. No, sir, that won't work. No, ma'am, that won't work. Brother, Brother Micah started us off by saying every city and every culture has a foundation. And the sad but liberating truth is we need to go back and look at our foundations. And our foundations are repentance from dead works and faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. These, this, these are the foundations. And if you get those right, you're going to have the fruit to show it. And if you don't, you're going to have to go back to the beginning. And that's not a bad thing. I've actually ministered to people who when I started to speak about repentance did not come under a conviction to repent but became offended that I would speak to such a mature audience about repentance. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to die daily. <laughs> I love hearing about repentance. It still speaks to me to this day. If you're not willing to reevaluate the things you take for granted, then just how serious are you about seeking a solution? Guys, get real. we got to stop playing at this. The culture is collapsing around our ears. And the church has been the worst accomplice in its demise, even while acting like it is the champion for its preservation. It has not bound sin. It has loosed it. And it has not loosed grace and the power of the Spirit the church has largely bound the same. God help us to become people committed to undoing that mistake. Fruit should be the end of debate. Is that how we think? Fruit should be the end of debate. Jesus did not say if they've got amazing fruit, check their doctrine, because it's likely a cult. I know nobody's ever thought that. He didn't say that. He said, false prophets will arise, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to mislead many. Beware of them. What did he say? Because they'll start these narrow little offshoots that make life harder on people. Nope. No, he didn't say that. He said they will open the broad way that the majority go in thereat. He said you will know them by their fruit. You won't be left going, I just don't know. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because fruit is visible. It grows on the outside of a tree. And you can look at it. Fruit is not appearances. Appearances can be fake, but... Fruit, fruit is substance. It puts life in the eater, energy to our bodies. Amen. When you encounter spiritual fruit, you go away with something from God inside of you. You know it. You can pretend you don't, but you do. You'll know them by their fruit. Fruit should be the end of debate. Doctrine should merely be the explanation of an abundantly fruitful life. 
If you got a doctrine that's not attached to an abundantly fruitful life, I want you to be quiet. <laughs> Nobody cares about your doctrine. But when it is abundantly fruitful, please share, because that's what we're all seeking as Christians. Does that make sense to everybody? Stop talking about doctrine as if it's doctrine out here and doctrine out there. Nobody cares about your doctrine. We want the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we want. We want what's real. And an encounter with God is going to reveal your heart. He loves us. He's going to visit us with answers. He's going to introduce us to solutions. But those answered prayers are oftentimes a refiner's fire. They're going to show something in us that we don't want to see. I hope I'm being prickly enough. Am I being prickly enough? Okay. I hope I am. I just want to be real. I don't want us to walk away and wonder what the next step is. You know what the next step is. Obedience. You know what the next step is. Call a spade a spade. Acknowledge that hope is on the way. That God is speaking to us. And that we can take steps forward into His purpose and will. And if our own image is too precious to us. I'm sorry, but there's a tough road ahead of us. Amen. Life apart from God, is supposed to pulverize all fantasies and faith in human will, effort, strength, etc. That's what life is supposed to do. It's supposed to pulverize all the fantasies that we can, of what we can do apart from God. And if we come to the Lord and we still have those fantasies outstanding, I'm sorry, the aroma of death is going to reach our nostrils. And we're going to go, I don't want to do that. Didn't the Lord in Gethsemane even pray, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me? And I don't think any of us are trying to live a life that is as hard as it possibly can be, right? We, we, have, to, we have to live by the grace of God, trusting He will not heap on us more than we can bear, right? So nobody's out there saying, I just wish my prayer life was more difficult. I, I just, I wish my Christianity was tougher. I wish faith was harder to come by. Nobody's out there saying that, are they? Okay, so I'm not promoting that either. But what I am saying is you've got to come to the end of all of your dreams and hopes and faith in everything but God. And then when He tells you something, no matter how hard it is, you say... Lord, though it kills me, if it's the last thing I ever do, I am going to set my face to seek your face, and I'm going to knock until that door opens, and I'm going to seek until I find, I'm going to ask until I am answered. It's got to be the choice of last resort. If we're still invested in other alternatives besides the church, besides the godly family, besides Jesus as a whole culture of life, if we're invested in any other alternatives, I'm telling you, stop now. Go down those paths. Experiment with all those solutions. And when you're dead tired of it all, and you're broken, and you say, God, I've tried everything there is to try. I've searched everywhere there is to look. And I'm empty, emptier than when I started. 
then right there God will begin a journey of faith. And no pride and smug complacency will keep you on the wrong side of the eye of the needle as you press your way into the kingdom of God. A seriousness any less grave is just dabbling. It's just piddling. And when you sign up for something like what God is calling the church to be in this hour, you better not be a dabbler. Brother told me the other day that he was in the military for how many years? I, I don't remember. Um, what happens to dabblers in basic training? They wash out. And so the church has said, oh, we see that. So we got to change our training. we got to water down our discipleship so that it keeps dabblers involved. But Jesus said, if you're not willing to lose your life, your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, your own spouse, your own life, you are not worthy to be his disciple. Stop playing games. It's so costly. We can't even entertain it if it's not the only option left. I can just hear it, you know. Lord, I would come, but you don't know what my soccer team means to my boys. Lord, I would come, but I don't know. I just, I don't know what I'm going to, how I'm going to live without my bridge club or whatever it is. The things that we put up next to the Lord and his purpose are just atrocious in their, in their valuelessness. Let's give it all or let's give nothing at all. But let's not be lukewarm, half in, half out. Thank you, Jesus. Not quite of the world and not quite of the kingdom. A double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, who receives nothing from the Lord. God seems to be more aggravated at the double-minded than at the straight-up rejectors. Let's not be double-minded. We all know the story of Paul when he was, um, yeah, he had appealed to Caesar. And um, he was in route to Rome, and the captain of the ship that he was going to be journey on, journeying on uh, said it's time to go and uh, Paul had a dream I believe it was and he came and he prophesied and he said don't don't get on this ship <laughs> it's going to be bad the Lord has revealed it to me in a dream they got on the ship anyway and um, things went really south really fast and everybody was freaking out and they're throwing everything overboard and Paul realizes that the sailors are planning to get in the lifeboats and paddle away from the main ship and leave everybody stranded. And so he goes to the centurion and he tells him that the Lord showed him this is what, what was fixing to happen. And he tells the centurion to cut all the lifeboats off the ship. How many of you have heard of the story of the Titanic? 
How many of you know that there was a court case about how few lifeboats they were, there were? So it's not exactly convention to be in a terrible storm and a likely ship sinking and say, uh, cut all the lifeboats. But it's very much the way of faith. To eliminate every option, every plan B, because you won't know the power of resolve and conviction and perseverance if you've got another option. I remember telling somebody at a wedding ceremony, if marriage is breakable, it will break when it confronts the incompatibilities between the two people, which will always be there because selfishness is incompatible with selfishness. But if marriage is unbreakable, then the confrontation of those incompatibilities can only give birth to transformation. When a covenant is unbreakable, when a choice is resolute, you only give yourself one outcome. That's the outcome you're going to get. But if you allow another outcome, when the going gets tough, you say, well, I just can't get my mind off those lifeboats. And you bail. Amen, so to speak. And I think that my word tonight is cut the lifeboats. <laughs> Stop acting like this is going to be easy. It is through much tribulation that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. And if we want to get real about God's power in our lives, about God's order in our relationships, about God's peace, about His joy, if we want to get real about fruit and witness to the world, we're going to have to go down to the foundations. It never, never ceases to amaze me. You can be anywhere. I remember being in South Africa the first time and, and, and this happened. But you can be anywhere in the world and you find a group of Christians and if you start bad-mouthing the church, I'm telling you, they're going to get on board. Everybody's got a story about how bad it was, about how they were mistreated, about how wrong the church is. And then if you say, I know... And you start questioning some of the fundamentals, the foundational issues, like, <gasps> that's not orthodox. Yeah, I, I didn't think we were impressed with orthodox. You're welcome to go back to it. I'm wanting to find fruit. I'm wanting to find the power of God unto salvation. Paul said, when I come, I will not learn your words. I will learn your power. I just challenge all of us. Let's not leave this conference having had our minds titillated or our ears tickled. Let's not leave this conference having made a, a list of, of glue-on cut and pastes that we're going to go home and do. Let's leave this conference having asked the hard questions about how committed we are to seeing your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's leave this conference saying, God, I've got no other option. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Amen. I'm going to be a Berean. I'm going to be a fruit inspector. <laughs> but I am not going to stop until I get the answer. And I'm not going to stop until I realize the promise that you have given. 
You see, I love this fan here. I love this fan here because it works. Amen. I remember ministering in a in another continent uh, some years ago, and they didn't have air conditioning. They were primitive, kind of like Idaho. <laughs> and the temperature there wasn't 82 like it is here right now, but it was warm. So, and they had this lo- row of fans. By the way, come to Texas. We have uh, central AC systems. They're great. But they had this row of fans down the wall on this side and down the wall on that side. And uh, half of the fans were just completely still. <laughs> and, and it was like, you need to be working right now. But it was a perfect analogy in the moment. And I told him, I said, this is our Christianity. You buy a fan in a box and you get out an instruction manual. What's our instruction manual? Amen? You get out your instruction manual and you say, okay, how do I put this together? And you say, well, this is what repentance is. This is what baptism is. You read the instruction manual. You put it all together. And you say, okay, plug it in, honey. And you plug it in and it just sits there lifeless. And you're like, what is the first thing you do if you're a sane person? Well, if you're not a Christian and it's not theology, you say, huh, hand me that instruction manual. I must have gotten something wrong. Because the promise that I was given from this word hasn't come to pass. So I can either rationalize and pretend it has, or I can say that the word was wrong, the promise is faulty, or I can say, I didn't understand the instructions. I don't know about you, but I hate reading instructions. My wife usually gets the instruction manual. Okay, honey, you tell me how to do it. I hate reading them. They're so boring. Oh. It's like, just say it quickly. Just make it simple. Put it in one page, one paragraph. I, don't, I hate it. I don't hate reading this. But if I put my Christianity together and the fan doesn't turn on, I don't stand under it and say, we just have the power of God by faith. Can you feel it? No. No, I, I can't. I can't feel it. I don't see it moving any leaves on the trees. I don't, there's no reality here. And somebody said, are you questioning my faith? No, I'm questioning your, your interpretation of the instruction manual. You've got more faith than I do to stand under a dead fan and pretend like it's alive. God has given us certain promises in his word. And we can believe those promises. And if it's not coming together the way we thought it was supposed to, let me rephrase that. If it's not coming together the way he promised it would, please let God be true and every man a liar. Reconsider what you think you know. Examine your assumptions. Even look at the foundations that you've taken for granted and say, God, is there more? It's amazing to me how anytime the Lord comes to bring a slight adjustment in someone's understanding, they act like they've got to throw the whole fan in the garbage. What are you saying? God did something in my life. Well, of course he did. God's been a reality in your life. I'm not trying to denigrate that. But 
are you good with a still fan? Because there's a way to put that together where you don't have to spin that blade with manual effort and tell yourself that it's, that it's more than what it is. There's a way to connect with power. And that's the promise Jesus gave in Luke, in Mark, in Acts. He promised the church power. You see, I feel that power. I feel it tonight. And I don't want to live a life with dead fans telling myself and others that the emperor has clothes or that the Christianity isn't lifeless when it is. Amen. I want to seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. I just, I believe he's going to do great things. And it's not, it's not because of something simply in the future. I know too much. I've seen too much to any longer doubt that he's going to do great things. I think he's already doing great things. I think in the 21st century, perhaps the greatest miracle, you know, I, I see healing miracles. I wish I saw them more than I do. I won't pretend that. I, I do. I wish. But you can pop pills for your pain. You know what you can't pop pills for? Broken families. There's no pill to fix a marriage. There's no pill to fix a broken family. So the greatest miracles in the 21st century are to bring about those changes that all the pharmaceuticals and all the medicine of the world can't touch to bring about wholeness and relationship and fruit and life fruit of love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law oh jesus don't you want to be part of a global body of christ that has those fruits hanging over the wall so that all of those hungering and thirsting have a hope don't you want to tell people, taste and see that the Lord is good, good, good? I'm so sick and tired of hearing people rationalize the lifeless fan. I'm so sick and tired of them rationalizing this withered, drought-destroyed vine. I want to see the fruit of the Spirit. I want to see the life of God. Thank you, Jesus, and I have, and I want to see more of it.